Oh, it's your favorite time of the week. All your work is done, and it's time to relax. So come, grab some friends, and let's get lit and join the rotation. You are now in the rotation with Suncoast Normal. We are your host, your Suncoast Normal Executive Board, and we say it's time to legalize it. where your Delta 9 is. It is time to jump into the rotation. That worked out well. You banged on the table and none of the wires came loose or nothing. Yeah, like but, you're, but you're supposed to put on the logo. I, I oh, oh, shoot. I'm t- when, right when I thought I was getting good at my you job. You lost my... F- That almost worked out quite well. <laughs> you got to roll that beautiful bean footage, Carlos. And Gary Absolutely. <laughs> well, here we are in, in Ybor City where it all began, where, <laughs> where Victor Licata killed his parents and started the whole anti-movement that, uh, that made it all happen. Right down the block. Right down the block. And, and we're at 1714 West 7th Street over in Ybor City at the uh, beautiful Chillum CBD dispensary and glass gallery. And this is The Rotation. My name is Gary Stein. I'm your your political director over at Suncoast Normal with my co-host, the fabulous director of Suncoast Normal, Carlos Ermida. Mm-hmm. And from just above the Beltway, we have Chris Kano, who is going to tell us in just a few minutes about what in the world are they doing in, in, in Washington, D.C. to screw things up that we aren't screwing up here in Tallahassee. And as a special guest today, we have Dr. Jeffrey Block, who has been pretty much involved in the uh, Florida cannabis program from prior to its inception and, and, help, yeah. and helping to nudge it along. And we will, we will get to uh, Dr. Block in just a minute, but we got to find out from Chris, what is the news in Washington, D.C. today? Well, you know, interesting thing, there's a lot of studies coming out, uh, you know, this week uh, in regards to cannabis. Uh, One thing that I think is quite interesting is that in the International Journal of Drug Policy, um, they did an analysis and marijuana legalization is associated with improved clearance rates for violent crimes. Uh, Meaning that, you know, since police are not spending time and paperwork arresting people for nonviolent cannabis possession crimes, they're actually able to address uh, more serious crimes, including clearance rates for, you know, uh, uh, you know, domestic violence, uh, uh, you know, and many other uh, serious crimes that they're seeing. And it's actually generated a crime deterrence effect. Um, and they uh, looked at this study, uh, you know, documenting the crime clearance rates in Colorado and Washington, um, you know, looking at violent crimes and property crimes. So I just thought that that's a quite interesting study to kick things off. Uh, you know, there's some other interesting uh, studies. Uh, they did a clinical trial uh, in the journal they published in the Frontiers in Psychiatry. And coming out of Basel, Switzerland, CBD cigarettes are associated with reductions in antipsychotic medications in patients with schizophrenia. So, you know, it seems like, uh, you know, uh, patients are, wait. you know. So they're, they're cutting wait. back on the Haldol and, and the Cinequan using CBD? Well, I just want to clarify something like that because I speak the CBD language. <laughs> uh, so when you say CBD cigarettes, do you mean like, like hempettes or do you mean like a CBD joint? 
So, you know? uh, yeah, oh, because uh, it's Switzerland, they have it in their chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, they were uh, looking at uh, a, a, a thousand milligrams a day. And so uh, folks uh, who are consuming 1,000 milligrams a day in CBD cigarettes uh, use fewer antipsychotic medications during the treatment versus the placebo group. Yeah, okay. All right, cool, cool. Yeah. So. Anything on the uh, legislation front? As the uh, various bills start to move forward, what is going on with the piece that was stuck in the defense bill? So um, – not much to really report on on the, on the legislative front, uh, Gary. If you do know more than I do on the defense bill, by all means, you know, feel free to free to share with folks. Uh, I do know that uh, you know we had a, uh, some research uh, uh, points on cannabis and, and alleviating uh, some of the issues we have with cannabis research uh, with the NID uh, a in, in regards to uh, you know what they were putting in the uh, in the budgets. Uh, you know, as far as actually passing a full budget. Uh, they've kicked the can down the road again here in D.C. Uh, until after first of the year. So there's a there will be no government shutdown, uh, but we still have not been able to pass a, a full budget. Yeah, the NDAA, which is the defense portion of the budget, uh, has stuck in it this year for the first time, the SAFE Act, which, ha- which would open up uh, cannabis banking for the first time because they couldn't put it through as a separate bill, so they're trying to put it through in a, a semi-reconciliation uh, um, a, a semi-re- uh uh, plan by putting it in there but unfortunately the budget itself is stuck yes. so it seems like we you know we went from one uh, one problem to another but that is just the way the, the, the government works and now that we're in the holiday season things, things tend to slow down really really much unless there's a lame duck session which there isn't this year for most people anyway there's I mean, we do have the midterms coming up but they're not coming up that fast yeah. There are a couple more studies that have come out that I think are quite interesting folks might want to hear. Uh, one in particular uh, is coming out of the Journal of Autism and Developmental Disorders. Uh, the University of Colorado School of Public Health assessed whether mothers with a, a self-reported history of uh, maternal cannabis use were more likely to give birth to children with autism spectrum disorder. And it turns out that uh, maternal cannabis use uh, uh, coming out of that study was not list, uh, linked to a higher risk of autism in children. Um, you know, we we con- we have consistently had this discussion on the show, and Gary, you've often referenced that a study of Jamaican mothers who had children that seemed to have uh, much better rates of uh, you know of just physical and motor skills than children whose mothers had not consumed cannabis. But I, I do know that that is something that the prohibitionist forces in this country still cling on to: is what about the kids? What about the kids? And that's consistently something that's been pointed to. And I just thought that that, that was another interesting interesting study that's come out. But I think one of the big ones, and I, and I know doc, uh, we can go to Dr. Block after this because he might have something to say about it. Um, you know, in the Journal of Cannabis and Cannabinoid Research, uh, there was a study that they analyzed that said chronic pain patients significantly reduced their use of opioids and benzos following their initiation of cannabis therapy. So for many of us who already know about that, I think it's uh, it's great for the public to get the opportunity uh, to see that. And with that, uh, those are my updates for this week. So I'll pass the mic back to you guys in, in Tampa. Yeah, I was about to say, Kano, you got like a lot of like medical findings and we, we happen to have a good guest on the show for that. <laughs> my, my guess is that you, you turned down the amount of L-tryptophan you had during Thanksgiving holiday and turned up the, the uh, sativating, so to speak. So to increase the amount of thinking you were doing all that time, which is, I think, wonderful. <laughs> so we have the perfect guests to, to have on the show today for all these these medical studies that, that Kenna just reported on. 
And this is essentially, I mean, I'm not even sugarcoating it. And get, Kano can get into to his bio a little bit. He, uh, or, or Gary, I'm sorry. I called you Kano. Gary can get into his bio well, I, I bio consider that deeper. an upgrade. That's but wonderful. Dr. Jeffrey Block is literally like, I, I look at you as the cannabis doctor in Florida. Like, and I don't think that's like, like bad for me to say that. So, yeah. Yeah. In fact, the last time that I saw you, doctor, was actually sitting in the hallway in the, uh, I think it was the fourth floor of the Senate, I think it was the Senate building, uh, over in Tallahassee as, as you were doctor for the day, at least one time that, that Jason Pirazzola wasn't doctor for the day. And it was, uh, and that you're, you're right in the thick of things in Tallahassee where all the corruption begins and ends. And uh, you've had a chance to take a look at this program from its inception from from the standpoint of how our regulators or what which we don't normally call legislators are basically working this program and i know that you work for the with the uh, university of um, miami the you know the green and orange uh, group and the, the, and the miller school and baskin palmer i institute which i'm very familiar with because my wife goes there all the time and uh which um, amazingly has a has an amazing connection with uh with the cannabis industry correct Oh yeah. Hi. And good morning, uh, Suncoast. From sunny Miami to up towards Tampa, where I have family, by the way. Um, Yes. uh, The University of Miami uh, through Baskin Palmer Eye Institute. Now this is the nation's leading eye hospital in the country for uh, almost all of the past 10 to 20 years. If you look at US News and World Report, it's number one. And not surprisingly, they see a lot of patients with glaucoma. We can talk about that later. I actually have it in, in one eye. Uh, but Elvi, um, who is sort of a, uh, a, a hero in your, your world, uh, has glaucoma of rather unusual type. And so she is one of few government IND, Investigational New Drug, recipients of government-issued cannabis that is delivered to the pharmacy department at Baskin Palmer Institute here in Miami. That's where she gets it, as does Irv Rosenfeld, who gets it for a different reason. But uh, those two last surviving patients of that government program from years and years ago uh, still access their cannabis through the pharmacies in that institution. And it's part of the University of Miami and uh, the Miller School of Medicine. Uh, I'm an adjunct professor there, and and I've enjoyed also uh, serving as the alumni president of the medical school in years past. And along with those fiduciary constraints, um, I, I appreciate your introduction. Uh, as the cannabis doc, I don't know how I, I necessarily like hearing it that way, because the fact <laughs> is that I don't see patients for it. Um, and, and that's purposeful. But uh, and when... Florida had its first law in 2014. It mandated physician education. I contributed to that original course uh, published by the Department of Health way back in November of 2014. And uh, then the rules and regulations that derived from that department were done. I contributed to those in early 2015. So uh, those are early days because it didn't pertain to THC. It was CBD only, Charlotte's Web, if you want to remember what that sounded like. And it was named the Compassionate Care Act. And so that's a good segue. With compassion implies do the right thing. And the laws are evolving. And we're law-minding and abiding citizens. So with that in mind, uh, I'm looking forward to enjoying this morning's session. And uh, let's go. I mean, the Hippocratic Oath says, uh, 
physicians do no harm. And so therefore, it was so highly important for physicians to be in, in, involved in this program because if the physicians are in charge and program, we have been constantly stuck in this cycle of only looking at, at research that talks about the harm of possible cannabis. And yet you were actually getting involved in this and showing that there was no harm because physicians do no harm. Is that, is well, that a fair assessment? Well, not exactly. And here, here's where I'll push back a little bit. I want to give you a little background into something I do know about, oaths of medicine. And yes, there is a Hippocratic oath. There are several other oaths also, which are given to new doctors as they embark on new careers. But um, Hippocrates is properly credited with saying first do no harm, but it's not part of the Hippocratic oath. It actually was part of a different set of writings called of the epidemics. And it's a very good segue, though, for me to introduce a little sobering slant to that phrase, first do no harm, because it's bantered back and forth, but in context with what it was originally written for, epidemics, it's a good reminder that physicians shouldn't either overestimate their capacity to heal nor cause harm. And in an epidemic in particular, you think of this with COVID and those particular things which came out as potentially therapeutic before the vaccines in particular. And whether ivermectin or if you remember even a plant derived from oleander and their hydroxychloroquine, another plant derived essentially for malaria drug. These are all things that went through the rigors of first do no harm. And in fact, uh, many of them didn't pan out. So. We're looking for things, and I'm giving the COVID analogy purposefully by pointing out that first do no harm in the context that Hippocrates talked about it was in the context of an epidemic. Do the right thing, though, which is really what you're stating and treating pain with compassion and understanding that patients are individuals and human beings fairly and equitably treat, treat them. That's all part of any oath of medicine, even though at the University of Miami, we now give something called the Oath of Geneva, okay? And that derived after World War II, when some of the things that were happening with healthcare and even doctors on each side of the border uh, or each side of a world war showed that we have to have some understanding of what is mutually bioethical. And on that basis, again, to begin the conversation for today, I just wanted to point out about Hippocrates. So now, now we've got a little history lesson having a lot to do with medicine, but nothing directly about cannabis yet. Well, we, this whole program started as a basic a medical program. And uh, this is one of the reasons I got involved in it, because I, I knew at that point in time, and you and I both pretty much got involved in this about the same time, where I was shifting my way away from health equity and towards something that was an ancient, medi an ancient medicine, which had been put aside for <laughs> millennia practically to uh, before it became as a, a possible popular cannabis as a medicine for the the masses and <clears throat> yet always looming in the background of course is the possibility of there being a medical program and a recreational program and i hate using the word recreational it got started in california i can't seem to stop it but <laughs> i always say adult use and you say what well, that that is kind of skirting the subject the fact is it's not exactly a medical program and there, therein, we have to work a step carefully in regards to how we move forward on this. Now, you've been involved in the anesthesia aspect of medicine. And anesthesia basically is, a, is about the blocking of pain for doctors to go ahead and do whatever they have to do in regards to surgery and things of that sort. And thank God we're beyond just the, just the idea of chloroform and, and leeches and things of that sort. And has there ever been a consideration of cannabis being used 
in the operating room? Um, well, I would think that it's used every day in that our patients coming in, whether they admit to it or not, are not infrequently, not necessarily acutely under influence, but certainly hours or even days if it's going to have any residual effects. Uh, many patients already have it. And in fact, the physicians who administer anesthetics, which are, of course, many, many medicines, not only things that you breathe in as gases, but other things in an intravenous, which safely include fentanyl, by the way. It's a staple of modern anesthetics because it's short acting. But when it's given intravenous like that under a skilled care, um, you know, it's very helpful. Now, cannabis is not directly used now, of course, as part of an anesthetic, but it would be important for physicians to know more to know how it impacts everything else in physiology, because that's what anesthesiologists are. They're really uh, clinical pharmacists and physiologists, and together that's how we get patients through an operation. So, uh, you know, putting somebody to sleep, that's the easy part, Gary, Carlos, Chris. <laughs> uh, waking them up is how come we get paid. And so, the idea is improve someone's experience there. But uh, you know what? There's actually, you mentioned some things about, you know, where cannabis came from in millennia. Um, you don't even have to go back that far to understand that there's actually a curious parallel with the discovery of modern anesthesia. Modern anesthesia is generally attributable to vapors, things that are breathed in. The first gas of which would have been thought of that way would have been ether, and yet that's in the 1840s. And the reason I want to bring up the discovery of ether is it's forever changed healthcare ever since. If you think about it, before modern anesthesia, it would be impossible to go and look inside the body how something's worked while someone's still alive. Think about that. Um, and obviously pain became the greatest you know, deterrent to somebody having surgery, which was largely limited to amputations of limbs, things like that. Uh, C-sections, unfortunately, women didn't survive frequently, and, uh, you know, other rare things, but always associated with the consequence of pain. So it was so important, the discovery of modern anesthesia, that I thought you'd like to know that it was discovered by a medical student in the 1840s by observing people playing with it recreationally. They were called ether frolics. And along with nitrous oxide, ether and nitrous oxide were sideshowed things and carnivals, things like that. And people would take a hit, pass out, and it took a medical student to look as his friends are parting, as probably medical students have in my day and ever since, uh, in, where, in which he watched somebody pass out, maybe look, take what looks like a prank fall or how that would hurt. And they get up and go, you know, no, no, that didn't hurt. Well, that's a eureka moment. Because a young doctor named Crawford Long in Georgia, in not Georgia on the other side of the world, Georgia the next state up, uh, talks a friend of his into removing a cyst on the back of his neck while he's breathing some ether, writes it up and gets credit for the discovery of modern anesthesia from that observational initiative. So if you look at the way people use cannabis today and what observations are happening that yet are being developed and medicalized in that sense, um, who knows the future for this, but I wanted to point out recreational or adult use or whatever other euphemisms, that particular use of ether 150 plus years ago is what led to the change of medicine forever. When did nitrous get involved? Nitrous oxide was more the way for dentists, but again, this was a gas. It was harder to store than ether, which was a liquid that at room temperature and pressure, if it's inside of a small vessel container like a flask, 
could stay as a liquid till the flask is opened up to air. Nitrous, though, that, that would be a gas, and it would take a big billowing balloon and a way to make it, but both were used that way as side shows. Uh, yeah, Carlos is a co-worker today, had to take the day off, so he's going to be going in and out, although I've known Carlos for a while. He's always going in and out, not even when he's, even when he's sitting still. But well, Gary, I had a question for Dr. Block. Uh, Dr. Block, you mentioned you know a, a medical student was so uh, pivotal in in helping develop you know where we're at with modern um, you know anesthesia. Um, our medical schools in America um, seem under-equipped in many cases to teach about the endocannabinoid system and in in just the the amount of education. I mean, in doing my research of you know how prepared doctors are. So, what do you think needs to happen in, in regards to education and helping our, our medical schools kind of understand that there is uh, you know an entire part of our body that cannabis therapy uh, can help with regards to everything from your your immune system to you know, uh, uh, other, uh, you know, especially uh, post-op and, and other things like that. I'm afraid that the improvement of medical school education across the whole country depends on the end of federal prohibition more than anything else. And I'll explain why. It's not a nefarious plot to keep young doctors, you know, out of the loop or anything conservative. I work with medical students every year, and I can tell you that they are inquisitive, bright, and would appreciate the understanding of this, but the subject itself, number one, is complicated. And to teach it properly, one first has to know in context how the body's own cannabinoids work, endocannabinoids, because that receptor system and its potential impact on literally everything in our body, I'm going to quote a 2013 report from the NIH, which says it has potential for therapeutic benefits in almost all diseases known to affect humans. That's, that's a very powerful statement, and those come out not only from NIH research PhDs, MD-PhD researchers. George Kunos and Pal Packer, go ahead and look that up sometime. That, to me, was saying, you know what? We got to learn about it because it's essential to everything else in our physiology. Now, that has nothing to do with cannabis directly. Cannabis is accredited with having led to that discovery because the discovery of the plant's chemicals led to further research that only 30 years after THC was discovered, Raphael Meshulam identified which of the body's chemicals THC is mimicking. And that's important, anandamide and 2-AG. Those two chemicals should be in every medical student's understanding for how they impact everything else. But the reason why it isn't, Chris, is this. I teach at the University of Miami the deans of education have known, and I've asked why. And I got a very, very good answer, actually. Medical students in the four years that they're in school have a tremendous amount of material that they have to digest. And they have to know it to a certain expertise so that after any medical student in the country finishes school, they don't just get their MD and state license. They may get the MD from that institution, but in order to get their state license wherever they want to practice, they first have to pass what's called the National Board Examinations. That's a federal level course and, and test, Chris. And guess what's not asked about on a federal test? Because according to the federal government, it is no known medical use according to one of the three definitions of prohibition. Anything about cannabis. Unfortunately, dragged along with that 
is really adequate education on the body's receptor system itself. They are two totally different issues. But that's what perseverates today in a pernicious way, not as a nefarious plot, but if you put this much education into the curricula, in the same four years, you have to take something else out. And that's a real challenge because the students are being asked about all of those things in order to satisfy their national board exam. Did that give you a little better insight for really why it's it's so challenging now without yes. the federal prohibition? And, and so we live with this. There are consequences to it. I can tell you the students coming out of our program and all programs, they're genuinely good, inquisitive young doctors, tremendously bright. And I think that when you have a generation going forward of doctors who understand how this system is and the potential research to help so many different things in the future, that's fine. The sobering reality though, and the need to know about the body's own system first, is that that knowledge will give new doctors a biologic context in which to interpret relatively little evidence-based data about cannabis. And that's one of the other consequences of prohibition. So you see, um, whether it's what's happening, teaching about it, researching it, or even training new docs, prohibition has some rather lousy side effects, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yes. Overregulation has, has a number of side effects that, uh, <laughs> that really overenumerate the things that can sometimes be beneficial. I mean, we, we see we, our whole new concept of all these new medications that are coming out uh, where they're talking about Delta-8 and Delta-10 and, and THCO and THCP are all just uh, ways to work around over-regulation, essentially, to get, to get access to the same kind of anatomide kind of feeling we get from THC. Uh, my, my first question to you, Dr. Block, though, is what is the, the most important part of the plant that would be involved in, in anesthesia or for people who have chronic non-malignant pain, as they say it in Tallahassee? Um, well, part of the plant, we're not talking physical part of the plant. I, I, I actually am a reasonably good a grower of tropical ornamentals. So that's what I first thought you were talking about, trichomes and things. You're talking about where the active chemicals are. And uh, they exist in parts of the plant I just mentioned called trichomes. But let's get into the individual components of what are in those trichomes, because everybody hears about cannabinoids, THC, CBD, and a handful of others but also terpenes, and they're produced there also. They actually start and they derive from the same original chemicals. The geranyl pyrophosphate, my background's chemistry from my first degree as a young, as a young budding doctor in a pre-medical. So uh, again, somebody's got their mic on, if that could be quieted and help me hear. Well, that, that's that's the uh, the store we're in right now. People are just starting to, to uh, hear it. Okay, you can, thank you. I think you can mute y'all side um, if you hit the mute button on the mouse. Ah, so okay. That, that way that background info doesn't... Uh, it, it bleeds back in. Yeah, anyway, I'm, I'm uh, not the engineer here. I'm just, I'm just the talent. <laughs> there you go. But getting, getting into the individual chemicals then, um, and, and your question about pain, because... What's happened, and I'm going to give you my overall kind of disappointment with the modern plant. Um, I understand that, again, the forces of prohibition itself have changed the plant from what was around when I was a kid, and certainly 50 years ago with the advent of the Controlled Substances Act. The penalties associated with getting caught with cannabis were the same, whether it was weak stuff or strong. 
So if you were going to take a risk under that law, you'd probably want to get caught with the strong stuff. Same thing happened in alcohol prohibition, by the way, guys. Wine and, and beer, they were not favorites of, of anybody who's you know smuggling it in. I'm down here in Miami. You think Al Capone's doing anything other than rum or, or moonshine? Yeah. So concentrates, that's what prohibition does. It pushes the, the prohibited substance towards concentrates. And in cannabis, those concentrates can be many kind, but it starts with a concentrated plant. And the plant's normal balance of chemicals, because cannabis is not one chemical. It's not only about THC. Never has been, probably never will be. Those concentrates push it towards that. But in fact, cannabis has other chemicals in it, including CBD, that tends to mitigate some of the side effects of THC. And plants evolving with balances of chemicals makes a lot of sense when you consider that cannabis is a particularly unique plant in that it was around 5,000 years ago from, rec you know, from documented human use. But it actually evolved closer to 10,000 years ago along with human beings because they both come from the same part of the world, the eastern slopes of the Himalayas, which was one particular part of the world which stayed warm and wet enough during the last ice age for some plant and animal species to survive. And from that point on is where you can either archaeologically or through written evidence document that human beings brought it with us around the world. It didn't just get there for, by animals and other things. So to me, that says something important. That says that not 50 years recent, but 10,000 years of human interaction with it documented would start to lend support that we sort of co-evolved. And we wouldn't have kept the same varietals for years after years, or maybe even people using it in the Asian continent versus Indian subcontinent or Africa, where it reached long before it ever got to the New World here, just barely 500 years ago, would have found reasons that they kept it in cultivation for all of those years, likely because it worked for something. Could it be spiritual? Could it be psychological? Could it be physical? Speculation. But there's something about that that's tantalizingly, you know, suggestive that it probably doesn't work too unfavorably with our genes, or one of the other of us probably would have been extinct or just not in favor at this point 10,000 years later. So from that little historical footnote, then, what are the chemicals that do it? They've got cannabinoids and terpenoids, both which exist there. And we're learning more and more about those terpenes because it winds out that they're different and we know more about individual cannabinoids that are different from one another as well. Even in the whole plant, in an acid form, those cannabinoids in particular have different pharmacological effects than once it's heated, gets decarboxylated, smoked, inhaled. And now you have really the predominant psycho, I'm not going to say toxic, but the one famously psychoactive drug that comes out of it, and probably the only one of any quantity and consequence, THC not THC 10, 8, 6, P, or anything else. Those are all esoteric curiosities or things that are meant to skirt around the existing legal constraints. But THC is the big one, has been, and will continue to be. And so when you look at the combinations of CBD with it, especially for the naive user, if someone were to try THC alone, sometimes it's not a pleasant effect. It's anxiety provoking in many people, especially those novice users put CBD with it, that in of itself is a fairly significant anxiolytic. 
you combine it with THC, you don't tend to unmask some of the euphoric side effects, but you do. And I say side effects because that is one of the way doctors look at different effects that way. It's not necessarily therapeutic for everybody to be stoned. Um, but it tends to mitigate some of the paranoia in particular. Now, the predominant terpene in the modern plant today is something called myrcene. Everybody heard of myrcene before? Yeah, yeah, you can find that in like black pepper, right? No, that's beta caryophylline. Okay, oh, okay, my <laughs> Where it's found, uh, well, people talk about mangoes, but it's actually found in hops. There's a good analogy because oh. hops biologically is the closest relative to cannabis. Hops, the stuff they use for the beer, all right? And and you can still go to Bavaria, Chris, and find pillows stuffed with hops today as a sleep aid. Myrcene in of itself is not simply calming, sedating, or relaxing. It's hypnotic. And I'm speaking to you as an anesthesiologist now. You know the difference when you see it. But one of the things that a hypnotic chemical does is it blocks memory. It's one of the reasons that myrcene on top of THC tends to be something more favored that's liked by people with PTSD where they may want to block some memories. But when that's really essentially in some places all that's out there, um, it's kind of hard to have selections that are rich in caryophylline, like you're saying. Caryophylline's a unique one. That's in black pepper, by the way, Chris. And, and what that does is actually works on different levels. Not only is it terpene flavoring smells, but also has a direct effect on cannabinoid receptors. So it technically is a plant-derived cannabinoid. Do you want to have people going to your restaurant table and arresting you at the table and telling you to get away from the salt and pepper? So um, <laughs> anyway, just in a bad dream maybe. But beta-caryophylline is special that way. Um, and, and so I'm pointing out these differences mostly because I'd mentioned before I'm critical of the modern plant. And the modern plant is a consequence of one, if not two, uh, plants that were discovered in the early 1970s, Afghani Kush number one, skunk number one. Um, those plants were discovered actually in Kandahar. Talk about Afghanistan. That's where, where this comes from. And uh, strong indica, okay? It, it is, this is something essentially lots of THC and lots of myrcene in not like normal cannabis or hemp. It's not a 20-foot plant in one growing season. It's a four to five-foot squatty plant. And guess what? In 1970 then became the darling of all breeders, particularly in California because it's easy to hide from a helicopter. That plant their dominant genetics, both myrcene, THC strong, the size and the stature of it, it's hard to find plants that don't have that genetic thumbprint still attached to it. If given the chance, I would love, when legally available, to hybridize something more like an heirloom, something you might have found before that impact, because I'm fascinated by the history of this. We've got genomics now that just happened since 2003 with the first plant genome ever done shortly after the Human Genome Project was finished. And what that's revealed with hundreds and now thousands of cannabis genomes deciphered, you can tell which plants came from which parts of the world, just like you can if you put your saliva in to check your own family lineage. That's a fascinating, you know, junction of, of genetics for both plants and animals now. And uh, that's a lot of what the future bears. But to unravel how the modern plant got to be the way that it is, pushing THC as a concentrate, maybe it's time to take a little step back and say, 
you know what, you can still get the total amount of THC if you just have more, but maybe we've got to get back to a balanced plant that contributes to a balanced, what we call physiology. That's actually the way cannabinoids work and what they do. They actually contribute so your body stays in balance when nature does something to it that would otherwise want to set it off balance. Sometimes it's physical. Sometimes it's psychological. For people who are wired that way, sometimes they find relief from it for things that for them are spiritually upsetting. And, and pain then is physically upsetting or an intolerable symptom. Remember, pain is listed in some places as a qualifying condition for cannabis. You know, pain is not a diagnosis. It's a disease. No, it's not. It, it's, it's a disease in the sense that it's a symptom of many diseases and injuries, but in of itself, it's really not a disease. It, it's, it's qualifying conditions in different states where it's legal is a challenge for some physicians and patients to sort of separate themselves from that understanding. And the reason it's important, though, for pain is that chronic non-cancer pain was one of very few things in, 19, in 2017 that the National Academies of, of, of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine found that it actually has substantial evidence-based data to show that it works for. Okay, not many things qualified there, certainly not all the 10 qualifying conditions even here in Florida where I am. But for nausea and vomiting, there's conclusive evidence-based data for that. That was the only one from that study. Recently, you're hearing more and more about epilepsy because of CBD and epidiolex and that it's no longer a controlled substance the same way. Um, so, in fact, that has evidence-based data, particularly refractory types of epilepsies and rare other things. But we're not talking about a customer base there for industry, but nevertheless, in a sense, legitimizing CBD as having something it really does work for. The other things are pain, but it's the muscle spasms from multiple sclerosis that has substantial evidence-based data. There's a drug out there right now that you take as an elixir under the tongue, and it's a combination of equal amounts of THC and CBD. It's, it's Okay, so, so Sativex is a brand name legal in close to 30 countries around the world. Hasn't quite made it here yet. But it is only replaced by Epidiolex from the same manufacturing company out of the UK that has worked with plant-derived cannabinoids and at least so far having Epidiolex being legal is a, is a big step in that direction for a more natural derived substance rather than something synthetic. Um, is, is this helpful for you guys then talking about the chemicals? Because again, it's easy to be critical of the modern plant, but everybody's using it. So I don't want to tell people, you know, what you're doing is, is not helpful or therapeutic. I just think that uh, the variety that what exists for whole flower in most of the uh, stores available throughout the country is not too imaginative. Well, Doc, I think well, I'm, that... I'm, a, I'm a pharmacology nerd. My dad was a pharmacist, so I grew up in the legitimate drug trade, so to speak. And it, 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 that to me is, is all fascinating because I know that Marinol was a step forward and a step back because it was it was straight THC with, with no terpenes and things of that sort. And so it, it created a fair amount of, of paranoia. Is that not correct? Well, it did. It's it's a synthetic analog. Dronabinol would be from the plant. But since both of them, you know, we're, we're talking about things that are actually legal and used. But when you take the balance of other chemicals away, yeah, you get the side effects, the paranoia, the anxiety that you're mentioning. Not to mention that its use is for what we had said. We know that the plant is good for the nausea and vomiting. 
And uh, when you take something as a gel tab or an elixir and you're throwing up and you're waiting maybe 10, 20 minutes for it to start to work, anybody who's ever known the immediate relief of inhalation that way compared to bypassing the stomach probably finds that more not only efficacious, meaning it works as well because it's the same active ingredient, but certainly much more rapid relief from nausea. It's a horrible symptom to have to have for a while. And so the, the speed of onset also in that case is relevant. Well, Doc, you know, anecdotally, um, I can tell you in my own life, um, it, it has helped significantly. My wife, uh, shortly after we got married, uh, developed a, a, a six centimeter cyst on her ovaries. And I mean, there were days where um, she was having trouble keeping food down. She was losing weight. She was always in chronic pain. And, and you know, for me, just wanting to help her, I was like, well, try this. Try try cannabis concentrates. And and it helped. It, it, it gave her the relief she needed to get up and go to work and, and, and make it through. And, uh, you know, after about three months, what I found interesting was that the cysts had just it was gone without additional medical treatment. So, you know, when I did some more research of the anti-cystic effects of the plants and such, I just thought, wow, this this plant really can help people. But what I found most profound is your point of view on how um, societal uh, effects have affected how humans treat the plant. And I think that is something that it, it, we have to keep in mind. I mean, uh, you mentioned about how different societies in different parts of the world, that's one of the reasons why um, land races are so popular among certain strain breeders, because they, they literally, you know, the genetics haven't been touched in hundreds of years in certain parts of the world because they've been so isolated. And I, I agree with your assessment. The, the modern plant we have is a side effect of, of prohibition, of, of, you know, trying to create uh, and commercialize something that, um, you know, in many ways, we should be breeding it uh, for different purposes. And, and, for, and uh, one of the things I know, uh, Gary had a question here that uh, we were pondering on is, you know, what's the ideal plant? And, and it, it seems like there's so many uh, different symptoms that it can treat that it, it's almost like we have to breed it in different ways for different uh, different conditions. I, I approach the plant in, in a way that is trying to look forward to where do I see the federal government ultimately sort of starting with, with different formulary, with different plants that have different amounts of chemicals? And one of the good things also about the Human Genome Project is it made the whole controversy about what's indica, what's sativa, moot. Everything out there essentially are hybrids today. We've just talked about the dominant genetics that produce the chemical imbalances. To me, that's not evolution, that devolved. But when you look then at um, the modern plant this way and you try to retool it almost, almost backwards, retrograde, um, to me, the ideal plant starts off with something that gets recognized through the genetics or that produce things called chemotypes. Largely when people looked at sativa and indica, they said skinny leaves, fat leaves, whatever, it all morphed together. So that a phenotype, let's start with that, is something that is a physical expression for the most part. Chemotype though, that's where one plant is different than another chemically, chemo. And, and that's an important distinction that genetics can parse out which chemicals do you think in the plant would be the best starting point. And it's probably not the plant that's been bred over the last 50 years or so to express so much THC. It's probably not even the Charlotte's Web things that are pushing, t you know, CBD to very high limits because 
Both of those are relatively unbalanced plants. So what I looked at is in April of 2020, a colleague who's a pharmacist, by the way, you know, as far as background, again, there for you, Gary, um, and, and people may not necessarily think the government's cannabis that comes out of the University of Mississippi is that imaginative, but I promise you he knows about growing plants. We have a lot of respect for each other from tropical ornamentals. Mahmoud al-Soli wrote a paper along with several other authors uh, where they included authors who are from, but not in this paper officially, the United States Pharmacopeia. The United States Pharmacopeia is the government's book and collection of what drugs are, where they come from, what we know about them, and what physicians should know. And that goes back 150 plus years. Um, the last issue of the United States Pharmacopeia, which it, cannabis appeared in for 90 years, to uh, include it was in 1942. Uh, no, it, it ended with 1942, right after the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. So in fact, that same volume of the United States Pharmacopeia still exists today. It's just that cannabis hasn't been in it for the last 80 years. And its, it's future, though, when it comes out of federal prohibition, would have to be included in there. And so the paper from April 2020 considers cannabis as being one of three types, Chris. One type would be those expressing predominantly CBD, another type, THC, and the third, approximately one-to-ones, equal THC-CBD. Didn't even really get into details about the terpene profiles. Let's just say those are adornments. But from the chemotype pertaining to cannabinoids, that's the way this group, which would be people reflecting this in USP in the future upon the repeal of prohibition, looks at it. Now, what does that tell me? And it tells me the way I would have thought about using the plant anyway, if given a choice of different formulary. Start with a one-to-one -one and develop out either way. Don't start from the end and try to find some happy ground where you're bypassing or going right past the one-to-one -one that may not even exist in the dispensing point where you're trying to resource your flower. So one-to-ones have a huge availability deficit. One-to-ones with a robust and imaginative terpene profile are things I'd like to see. And I don't care if those one-to-ones are 20% of each or 2% of each. It's not what's in the plant. It's the total dose that's taken in that when it's balanced has the impact on, on hopefully a therapeutic benefit without having as many side effects as the modern plant carries. Now, uh, we, a lot of people re have relied very heavily in the, over the last couple of decades from, for, with RSO, the stuff that Rick Simpson had created because he took a white widow plant and took everything from, from tip to root and condensed it into, into a single yucky tasting chlor chlorophyll acting uh, paste that, that did re remarkable things for, for cancer. And of course, he was knocked down for, for this, this approach. And yet today we have retail products that are being made from isolates of, of THC and isolates of various terpenes. And, they're, and they're, they're claiming that they're brand new strains. But in fact, these are actually what they often call in the industry hot dog water, which you know it tastes like it, but there's no actual hot dogs in it. And that is of concern to me because again, we're going far beyond 
the natural evolution of the plant and the homeostasis of the plant and how it actually puts together all the various ratios all these of all the various terpenes as well as cannabinoids and trying to play God, so to speak. I always say that nature is always smarter than science because science is still trying to figure nature out. And yet we're trying to take the opposite approach. I would be interested in hearing your opinion on that. Hmm. Um, my first is a comment from Hippocrates, but another quote. Nature itself is the best physician. So um, as far as, well, I mean, I, I don't want to start getting into tangents on talking about this one given manufactured isolate uh, work for something else. It, it's not quite there yet, RSO included. So um, that's where evidence-based data and having numbers of patients is huge because Things happened in California and West Coast that are gradually over 25 years working their way here, Gary. And um, in fact, when I when I look at the start of how this evolved, it's not that long of a history. We don't have to go back thousands or even 150 years or 85 years. Just in the last quarter century, the first state to really recognize the potential value of medical was in fact California. Yeah, condemned them from, from recreational back in 2016, but they recognized by 1996 medical, that's when the first medical state happened, not Colorado and things that just timing with epidiolects and, you know, children who unfortunately had seizure histories made it popular, so Sanjay Gupta started to get the word out. It goes back to the later 1990s when at least California recognized that, and along with that, Gary came a bunch of money, about $2 million a year, I believe it was, for research. And it went to California's medical schools. And up and down the state, there was some really fine research done on cannabis, but not enough subjects. That's the key. Subjects haven't um, been plentiful for those so that essentially 20 years of research through their academic institutions never got the attention on the federal level, FDA in particular, to get the legitimacy that it might have had if instead of having 30 subjects, they had 3,000. There's a magic number. It's closer to four to 500, but um, there's been a lot of good subject research. But again, the difference of what happened with the 2017 National Academies report is that was a meta-analysis looking at hundreds and tens of thousands of, of patients and came up with limited but evidence-based data that says, yes, it works for these. And, and the reason that that's so important compared to most of what you hear about for all the other qualifying conditions nowadays is that information is largely garnished through what's called crowdsourcing. You ask people how they're feeling, and then you take those individual reports and bring them together. From an academician or research professional's background, it's kind of loosey-goosey. But yes, crowdsourcing and, and surveys and things like that do have their place. But here's the interesting point about cannabis in particular with crowdsourcing. Think about this if you were the researcher and you ask a given patient, let's say a patient who's having pain, and... They have a joint, they take two or three hits, they're sitting back, hour later you say, how are you doing? They say, I'm feeling much better now. Okay, that's one episode of a report, but then what you're also having to digest is that somebody's high during that time. 
euphoria. There's nothing wrong with euphoria in of itself, but it does influence perception. So from the effect of euphoria and placebo, sometimes it's not that easy within a few hours to ask somebody how they're doing. So let's say the same person is asked two weeks later, come back to the office, let's see how you're doing. This is the researcher asking you, so how did it help you? And now the person who's coming back two weeks later is asking to remember how they felt after they take the hit of the office two weeks before. That's when the memory impairment of cannabis is so important to understand that especially combine it with myrcene. And now you're asking somebody two weeks later to comment on something that is famously and well understood to be memory impairing. How reliable is that crowdsourced data weeks later? So whether you're doing it now or later, crowdsourcing with cannabis for impact and effect for how somebody's doing in particular for pain is challenging. I'm not saying it's impossible and I'm not saying there's not correlations, but it's hard for a researcher to hang their hat on it because of those two confounders. Um, going forward, are there ways to get around it? Yeah, but it's complicated. Animal studies, of course, and there are actually some pretty good animal models for what works, including in, in rats with little grids under their feet that give a little shock. I don't mean to sound too horrific with that, but there are classic ways that through animal studies, pain is assessed, um, and some models even with primates, you know, all, also. So the problem's not that it couldn't be determined. The problem is that the challenge is still to researching what is being researched how much time and money goes into the research are all things that sort of are pushing recreation. Hey, we'll get around the necessary research. We'll just jump right to adult use. Well, I, I personally, as a physician, hope we know a lot more about its safety and efficacy medically. I'm not dismissing it. I'm just understandably skeptical if based only on the confounders that we just talked about and whether it's euphoria or memory impairment, both are impactful. And the last thing I'll bring up to it relative to what that euphemism I used a minute ago, Gary, and, and you heard me say adult use rather than recreational. I, I think that actual name derived also from California when they were dealing with different ways. How do we package recreational and sell it and say, oh, we'll keep it away from kids. Kids get it. We all know this. Um, I, I've had a very interesting life the last few years. I've got twin boys who are 16 years old. And they've just started going back to high school down here. And and uh, it's interesting going back to high school because they were sheltered the last two years under COVID. They had essentially half of ninth and all of 10th grade light, <laughs> in essence, because they're at home. They didn't have the social experience that they would have had in school. And that's valuable. Like, I think they miss that. And, and what's more is growing up with two boys going through puberty at that time under the confinement of COVID. It, it, it's been an interesting few years, but now they're back in school. And when I was in school at their age, uh, I clearly remember people, hey, Jeff, you want to smoke? And they're talking a tobacco cigarette. You know, let's go behind the gym. And that was it. Forget that now. It's, hey, do you vape? And so kids do get it. We know this. As far as around, it, it's also one of the reasons that Juul, and there's a delivery vice for nicotine, which is far more dependency and addictive than cannabis ever thought of being, is, is such a potential scourge, especially when introduced to kids my age, rather than 
what it was designed for, which is the tool to stop smoking, not to start. But the delivery device, the secrecy of it and everything is just so perfectly made to where somebody could do it that my fears are combining cannabis with nicotine again, which is all historically that's what's been done. The words joint, spliff, um, blunt, they're all different combinations, Al uh, cannabis along with tobacco. Those things inevitably have vaping of nicotine and cannabinoids in the future. And, you know, that's something where a recreational market might find a way for it. I'm hoping it's not here anytime soon. I hope my kids will grow up. Uh, but I also acknowledge that they will grow up in a world that has a commercialized cannabis industry. It doesn't mean you have to like it or not. Just get smart and recognize that it's here. And so all I can say is that protect your children. Their brains are still forming valuable connections that we don't quite yet know what the long-term impact is, but we do know its effect on memory. We do know its effect on developing you know, connections in brains. And those connections for my kids don't finish when they graduate high school either. They actually probably continue right through your mid-20s for all of us. You know, this is just how humans grow up, whether the law says, you know, at 18 you can drink, smoke, or go off to war. That's not the conversation I'm telling you. I'm just saying that these are considerations because of what we want to offer our children, which is really the, the, the best tools they can have to go forward and the best minds for problem solving. Cannabis is not a performance-enhancing substance. Okay, if if my kids are going to be, you know, uh, you know, tested for something when they're in school athletics, for instance, if one of them likes track or or one of them, you know, really is concerned with with performance, I'd be concerned, and the coach of the opposing team should be rightfully concerned if they're using steroids and performance enhancing drugs. You'd want them tested for that. But if my other kid wants to go and be part of the chess team or the debate team, I don't have to worry about the opposing coach testing them for cannabis, do I? Okay, it, it's not a performance enhancing substance. So uh, I'm just cautious of what happens to kids as this whole burgeoning industry is coming out and hopefully providing adults with um, not alternative, but perhaps complementary medicines that don't dismiss the advances that Western medicines made in diagnosing and, and therapeutics, but add it as another arrow to the quiver of a clinician. I, I, I don't necessarily, you know, think that physicians who only see patients for the purpose of cannabis are getting the full bang out of what it really can offer to health and wellness at large. Um, don't dismiss uh, this for other things that are known to help better. And, and I'm the best example of that for glaucoma, eye drops. I use eye drops because I know the impact of what my glaucoma responds to that has really no side effects that are systemic and works in the eye for a much longer duration than cannabis could. And you, some, I, can, uh, I know uh, cannabis will lower the pressure. Aren't there some systemic uh, side effects to COSOPs in regards to blood pressure and things of that sort? Um, only if you're very, very sensitive to certain things and you could see stuff on package inserts, but um, th things that are done topically in small doses, side effects, if they are happening, um, are, are few and far between. And if it is COSOP is one medicine, my point is that in the last many years, 
there are dozens of different things that approach glaucoma from different angles. And uh, angles, angle, angle yeah, closure, cute. glaucoma. I got the fun, so, yeah. so, so I didn't mean it in that context, but he, here's the point. And, and I'm actually going to give you uh, an example. Paul Palmieri, Palm, Elvie's doc, okay, for all those years treating her glaucoma, presented grand rounds with me at Baskin Palmer back, I think it was in 2018, maybe 2017. And the reason we presented is we weren't even presenting Elvie. We were presenting a kid, a poor little girl. And, and I'm going to give you the story briefly because this was an impactful case. And I know we're coming up to the hour. Oh, Palmberg, thank you very much for who just contributed that. Paul Palmberg. I think um, it was Paul Tofino. <laughs> okay. Paul Palmberg um, is, is an older doc now, and, and yet for years on Baskin Palmer Eye Institute staff, he was the glaucoma expert. LV, he told me, is a one in 10,000 case. Very challenging, failed treatment with many other eye drops. Cannabis did work, and she's been on it ever, ever since, and I'm going back decades. However, now there have been a lot more tools added to it. In other words, different drugs that work as eye drops through different mechanisms. And I just want to share the story with you because I detached retinas in my eyes, but my left eye in particular is an artificial lens. And after I jumped in a pool wearing a mask, that lens popped back, had to be retrieved. And since then, the architecture of my eyes is a little different inside. So the pressures go higher than they should, and I need eye drops. It's glaucoma. So I get checked uh, quarterly, and then the visual fields and things like that, and use the drops. It works fine. There's pediatric glaucoma, and the doc who follows me at, at Baskin Palmer, actually, her specialty is pediatric surgery for glaucoma. Highly specialized field. Baskin Palmer has the finest in the world doing some very spectacular things there. And she knew that I had a background in, in knowing certain things about cannabis, and she sees kids, including right through teenagers, who have glaucoma. And after meeting me, she wanted to tell me about a case that she had that she actually felt horrible about because she had a bad outcome, and we wanted to discuss that in Grand Rounds. And, and the case was a young girl who came in, essentially as an emancipated minor, maybe 15 at most, 16 years old, and comes in with some headaches, gets her eyes checked. She has glaucoma, bilateral, high pressures. It happens that way. And so she gets her visual fields checked, and there's minimal deficits at that point, but her pressures are like off the roof. So she's given drops and told to go home, come back three months later for a pressure check, and then three months hence, she'd get her visual fields checked again. So she comes back three months later, she gets her pressures checked, and her pressures are better than they were. Go home, not, not quite perfect, but go home. And I think they asked her to double up on drop or maybe even change her drop. Comes back three months hence, and her pressures now are still good. And they check her fields, thinking, okay, shouldn't be much of a change. She's endured higher pressure before. But now they check her visual fields, and they're worse. A year, uh, six months later, goes on another year, another half year after that, after a year and a half to two years, now there's significant impairment. This girl is legally blind. And for the first time, she's asked, have you ever tried, you know, pot, smoking pot? And the girl who's been followed there now for a couple of years didn't really want to say anything. She says, you know, I know about cannabis and glaucoma or marijuana and glaucoma, but I don't like the way it makes me feel 
And remember, this is a young girl who wants to have her doctors feel good about her and think that, you know, she's a good person. She says, well, I, I didn't tell you, but when I come in, and the only time I ever do it, right before I come in, I'll take a hit. But I don't like the way it makes me feel. I'm trying to hold down a job as a waitress. They tell me I can't have that in my system or I, I could lose my job. So the only time over this year and a half that she's been doing it is right before she comes in. It's fooled the docs. The docs really didn't either know or want to ask because of the legality issue, young girl, things like that. And now we have a young girl who's legally blind for the rest of her life, irreversibly, while being cared for with procedures that likely could have headed it off at the pass. But that's a horrible story about the consequences of prohibition, what we tell our doctors, what happens when we don't level with them, not knowing how they might perceive us. Um, it's a problem. And it's a powerful story. It was a good enough case presentation for Dr. Palmberg and I to present that as a grand rounds lesson. And uh, I think it was very, a very powerful lesson. Well, Doc, thank you for sharing that. I mean, that just goes to show how important uh, physician education is, but also for patients and consumers to to level and, and understand about the doctor privilege. Like you should be open with your doctor about your lifestyle and the things that you do so that they can better treat you. And uh, that's just, uh, yeah, that, that's such an impactful lesson to learn. I got to say, Doc, I, I, your voice is amazing. I can listen to you do a cannabis documentary for two, three hours, no problem. But we are coming up on time here on the show. So I want to pass the mic to Gary for uh, any closing thoughts. Boy, I had so much I wanted to, to ask you, and I, only, I, I should have relegated this to one hour, but maybe we have to ask you, ask you to come back again to hit all the other topics that are involved, including the importance of that, uh, that six-hour versus two-hour test for, for physicians, as well as education of bud tenders, because they are essentially our pharmacists here. And pharmacists, as my dad always told me, was the second line of defense to make certain you know what the heck you're taking. And that we, we're, I'm looking forward to uh, that discussion in the near future. Uh, Dr. Block, is there anything else you want, want to say in closing before we, before we head out here? Um, yeah, just one thing. I'm going to want to tell you about at least how Southeast Florida's physicians have developed a consensus uh, opinion on where we would like Florida's physicians at large to understand the importance of two things. And we've done this uh, through the Florida Medical Association through a resolution passed this past summer because... In 2012, the organization said we oppose it about cannabis, and it sort of shut down the conversation from physician leadership throughout the state. We published in Miami Medicine earlier uh, last month a consensus opinion, peer-reviewed, that offers ways that we should start to consider the consequences if we oppose it, not engaging in conversations. That started even before with CBD only. There were 50,000 patients at last count. We're pushing 650,000 Florida citizen patients who have cannabis legally. That's not even the illegal ones. If physicians don't think it impacts their practice, when you have that many patients trending a million, perhaps by the gubernatorial elections next year, Gary, we met in Tallahassee, maybe we should cover on another talk the realities of where patient outcome can be improved with better legislation. Love to hear that, Doc. Uh, I'm a big proponent of, of uh, patient-centric legislation, and so we should definitely uh, uh, continue that conversation. 
And also, uh, I'm, I'm working on trying to get a study going uh, through the University of South Florida on whether or not our first responders would be able to perform properly at their jobs if they use the product when they're not on call and not on duty. And that is something I've had a discussion with in regards to our, our sheriffs over here and our, our, our fire chiefs, because we got a lot of folks out there who are first responders who cannot unsee the things they've seen and are dealing with a lot of PTSD. And I'm hoping we, we can uh, take care of that, that, that target group as we as we move on and of course i have to throw in the commercial here because we are suncoast normal we are a membership driven organization and for a mere 25 dollars, you can be part of our organization help us move this legislation forward we need your talent your treasure your time we have a uh, a lobby day coming up in, in mid-january which we're going to give you more information later on but in the meantime we want to tell you to stay safe stay well and be good take care guys Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. This has been The Rotation, and you have been a part of it. You can be a bigger part of it by joining Suncoast Normal. Suncoast Normal is an organization that can help you make the change that we all need. Go to the Suncoast Normal website and become a member. Because that is how you become part of the change. You can find the Rotation Podcast on both SoundCloud and iTunes. But you can always join us in the Rotation at suncoastnormal.org. At that very website, you can join the cannabis movement by becoming a member of Suncoast Normal. Gain access to cannabis events, cannabis info, Normal's legal network, and even a free membership to National. All by joining Suncoast Normal. That website, again, is suncoastnorml.org. You can also find us on social media, at Suncoast Normal. Uh, Find us on both Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And thank you, Gary, and good night. Good night.